What's up, everyone, and welcome to A Whole Lot of BS Podcast presented by Revolution Sports Performance. My name is Barrett Stover, and today we are continuing on with part two of our conversation with Dr. Smansky. If you haven't listened to part one, make sure you go back and check that out. Uh, a lot of good information in there uh, and a good background on who Dr. Smansky is and why he is such an authority on baseball training and strength conditioning in um, really any sector, but specifically baseball. Uh, and then in today, in part two, we dive into the future of baseball training, uh, what, the, what the assessment process may look like, and what he is planning to do with the lab that they now have on campus at Louisiana Tech. Uh, we also get into one or two of the major issues on the field and what he would do to fix that, and some suggestions he has for people in the industry that, that may help solve some of those problems. Uh, he also offers some really good advice to young coaches or people thinking about getting into the field, whether you're coming out of college, high school, or switching professions. Some great starting steps and potential secondary steps that uh, he walked me through in grad school and helped me a ton. And then we finish up with some rapid fire questions. So here is part two with Dr. Smansky. All right, so with you mentioned the lab the, that you have yep. now, and besides uh, assessing the baseball team and putting uh, those guys through um, different evaluations and, and training techniques in there, what do you have any research that's that's on the docket where you're about to get started with or just com- uh, completed in there? Yep. Well, because we just got that equipment, we don't have any re- research related to that. I mean, the, the most recent research that I've done – I probably three years ago when the ZEP unit first came out. So the ZEP unit yep. is also an accelerometer and a gyroscope similar to the BLAST unit. Unfortunately, I guess there were some copyright infringements between the two companies. And now it's my understanding that the ZEP unit can no longer be sold in the United States. So then BLAST had then a uh, like a refund. You send your ZEP units in and they'll let you buy the, the BLAST units at half the cost. I ended up doing that. But anyway, we did some, we did two studies with the ZEP unit to see how valid and reliable it was compared to the equipment that I've used here, which was a, a set pro device that was designed by a mechanical engineer that I've used for years. And actually, Jeff Elbert used it too when he was first starting out. Anyway, we looked at the bat velocities from the set pro unit that I've used in research and then the ZEP units. And we did this with the youth baseball team that I was coaching. And, and these were 12-year-old boys who were on a, I'll call it a semi-travel team. It was a Dixie youth team here in, in Ruston, Louisiana, that ultimately did go to the World Series and was runner-up. And then I will say proudly, last year they looked again to Lumberton, North Carolina, and we won the World Series as uh, 12-year-olds last year. They were 11-year-olds the previous year. Anyway, they're decent baseball players is what my point really is. So the bat velocity that these 11-year-olds had when we did that study with the ZEP unit compared to the SETPRO unit was very reliable. So those accelerometers that you can buy at a local sporting goods store or online, they are accurate. So I would recommend if somebody wants to know their bat speed or the, the uh, angle of the bat, these pieces of equipment, what I'm going to say, are relatively inexpensive. They're worth your money. Uh, we did another study the following year. We didn't use the uh, younger kids we used high school kids here locally and we found very similar results that the bat velocities 
of the high school students were very similar with the ZEP unit compared to the SEPCO units. So the correlational data, and I don't remember exactly, but it was probably 0 0.90 or better, so it was a high correlation for both the young kids and the older high school athletes. So again, the practical application of the findings were you can feel comfortable and confident in using these pieces of equipment because they are accurate. And now that we have the motion capture equipment in the force plates, and Louisiana Tech Baseball is now working with us, we have the opportunity to do some things that we've never done before. And one other piece of equipment that I, I did not tell you that we just got also, the Cosmed K5 metabolic unit. The K5 unit, if you're not familiar with it, is a portable metabolic unit. So now with a harness, you can put the, the unit on the a pitcher's back, for example, and then have them wear the mask where we're collecting expired oxygen and carbon dioxide. So while they are physically pitching in a bullpen, if they are so inclined to let us do it during an inter-squad game, which would be cooler than anything, <laughs> and would be the first time probably in history something like this would be used in that capacity, we could actually get the VO2 and CO2 of a baseball pitcher during simulated games or maybe intra-squad games, and then really know then, based off of what they're expiring, we can know what's called your RER, your respiratory exchange ratio, and that will tell us exactly what their individual fuel utilization is, meaning are you using fats predominantly as a fuel source or are you using carbs primarily as a fuel source? And that information then, we then say baseball pitchers could be training this way, and that might be you know, anaerobic, that might be aerobic, it might be a, a combination of the two. It will give us data that's really not been done before. I mean, the only study that I know, Dr. Jeff Potiger, when he was a doctoral student at Auburn, he did a study that's out there from 1992, and there's a couple of them that you can find if you're interested. But he actually had a metabolic cart where he actually had the, the mouthpiece with the nose clip, and I know because I was at Auburn, uh, with Dr. Passel, who was one of his uh, uh, peers as a professor there, they had the, the mouthpiece hooked up, and the tubes from the mouthpiece actually went up to the ceiling, and they pitched like that, and that's how difficult it was to do that back in the 90s. But now that you have this, you can have it when they're pitching, you can have it when they're hitting, you can, you can wear it while they're playing tennis, while you're running track. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You can wear it while you are competing. And so if we, that then, here is my study. Let's get the pitchers in our lab, have them throw from the mound. Right now, the force plates, we need to build a mound where we can put the force plates in them. So now we can get the rate of force development and peak power from the back foot and then the landing foot. We could do the 12 camera motion capture analysis of each pitcher's throwing mechanics get the expired oxygen carbon dioxide and know what fuels they're using and how intense their pitching really is, and then take the blood lactate samples, and now that would be a study that has never been done anywhere in the world. And I am as excited as I've ever been, Barrett. And, uh, it is an opportunity to not only do this for, I'll say, my, myself, but our department, our students, and I really think once some of this stuff starts getting out there, more people are going to want to be a graduate student if you want to be involved with the sports science of baseball or softball than ever before because now we can do things that we couldn't do before that we hopefully, you know, we dreamed about doing, but we just at the time didn't have the money or the technology. And over the last two years, we've written 
numerous grants that have allowed us to purchase these pieces of equipment. And now it's kind of like we've built, and I use sometimes analogy, the Taj Mahal. We've built a unbelievable lab where we can measure literally anything we want now. The only thing that we currently don't have is EMG equipment. But if you did that, then you could get, in addition to everything else I mentioned, you could get the the recruitment pattern of specific muscles. Well, that's we relatively cheap on. compared to the other stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We, we just, you know, I, I've wanted that motion capture system for so long. Yeah, oh, you are talking and about that when I was there. Before, was like, yeah. Eight years, you know, six years ago. I, I, yeah, I used it when I was a doctoral student, but we never had it here, and we just had to use equipment that we that was relatively inexpensive. And now it's 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 what you know what we've always dreamed about having here. And now we have a, a team that again wants to be involved with this sports science and uses it to help them recruit, and to also help them test and monitor their athletes and see if they're getting better, or you know what else we can do. Because the other piece of equipment now that we're using more that we didn't really use before is the biodex unit. So we did a study with a baseball pitcher here who had a slap two tear in his right shoulder. And the athletic Just trainer... Just to clarify, a labral, labral tear, correct? Yeah, yeah, okay. labral tear. Slap, yeah, slap two is a labral tear. And there's a... From a slap one is the least... Uh, of an, the, the least concerning yeah, of yeah. an injury. It's a very small, you know, tear. All the way to a slap nine. So if you Google that stuff, you'll see all the different areas. So from a slap one, slap two, surgery usually is not required. So an athletic trainer then can go in with a rehab program that might be something similar to the Throwers 10 programs, get the stabilization, maybe some of the overweighted bands, and uh, you know other implements that are now being utilized. But the point is, is that he actually went through a rehab program with the athletic trainer, we actually use the Biodex, which is an isokinetic device. And I always tell people, if you ever watch Rocky IV, you saw Ivan Drago doing that internal external rotation with his elbow at a 90-degree angle at his side. That's the type of movement that you can actually quantify the work that someone is producing at a given speed, at a given range of motion. And so now we can have the pitcher do an internal external rotation at 90 degrees, internal external rotation at zero degrees where the elbow's at the side, a D2 flexion extension, which basically mimics the overhead throwing motion. If you came from a 11 or 12 o'clock position on a clock with your overhead throwing motion. And so now if we, and you would do the first two of those seated and the D2 flexion extension, you can do that standing. So now you can see the force production of their arm when it's healthy. And if for whatever reason they're having some type of injury, you can actually reassess them. You can actually quantify what percentage of their initial workload were they at when they were healthy. That's really so cool. If they're at, yeah. It's really cool. So if you're at 70% or 80%, hey, still stay with the throwing program. Still stay with your uh, rehab. We're not going to have you go into your throwing. Again, if we can quantify all this stuff, now we can give the coaches and the player, hey, here's when you need to go back on the field and start your throwing program. Then maybe get into your, if you have a long toss program or whatever the throwing program that a doctor might be prescribing. And now you can feel confident that, your body should physiologically be able to do this. The other variable you've got to think about is really in the sports psychology. Are you mentally prepared to go back to this? And where are you in your mindset about how healthy and strong you are? Because anyone who comes back from an injury is going to say, you know what, I'm trying to test my body to see if it can do what it used to do. And 
deal with maybe some of this pain that I'm not accustomed to is it's just getting back to trying to go at full speed. And if we do all that stuff, which is my intent, that's what I told the baseball coaches that we can do, and the pitching coach in particular is, really is interested in this, now we can get all the information. And then I'm also going to be purchasing the Rapsato device for baseball pitching. Now we can look at the spin rate and every other variable. I think there's like 10 or 12 variables that the pitching gets. And again, for relatively inexpensive costs, you know, four or five thousand dollars compared to seventy thousand, you can use that piece of equipment in the lab or at the baseball field, and you can put it in the bullpen. So a lot of major league baseball teams are using that in their spring training facilities, outside in their bullpens, and they're recording this information so they know spin rates. And I want to say most recently, the average spin rate that I heard for the a fastball was like twenty four hundred yeah, somewhere around or there. So yeah. Yeah, 2,400 is the average spin rate. Well, yesterday or the day before, I was listening to a Major League Baseball game, and they were talking about um, uh, the pitcher from the Boston Red Sox that just got traded, uh, the reliever, skinny guy with the glasses. Joe Kelly? Um, yeah, Joe Kelly. Joe mm-hmm. Kelly's spin rate is for his four-seam fastball that he throws between 96 and 100 miles an hour has a greater spin rate than the average velocity fastball. So it looks like it rises, right? So it doesn't actually we'll say go down with gravity, right. it actually stays at the trajectory that it's at. So players are usually swinging under it. Well, if we know that type of information, that's really, again, it will motivate the pitcher. It'll let the pitching coach know where they're at. If they're not at that average velocity, then, hey, maybe we change your arm slot. Maybe we change your lower body. Maybe we change right. your grip on the ball. Some slight change to see if we can enhance that. And if we can, then that's going to help the player. But the player's going to believe in the coach more because they're seeing the quantifiable data. It's not a coach just saying, hey, this is what I think. No, I got the numbers to show you. Right. Here's what you, you're doing, and here's how I think we can improve it. Well, the thing I think about, then, too, when you're talking about all the testing is obviously rehab it would be great for, but preventative measures. You know, if you, if you run everybody through that in the fall, then it's easy to – tease yep. out uh, especially if you have the emg going at the same time to say like this is what we want for base level external rotation either activation of the rotator cuff or uh, mm-hmm. isometric strength and if you're not at that level okay well we need to spend some more time with this person doing yep. x y and z so that either you don't get hurt or your performance increases because you're now stronger so your body's able to handle more force and torque and that's that sort of thing yeah absolutely and, and that's the wonderful thing about it. And it's amazing now that baseball pitching coaches are learning more and more about this, right? Now, in, in this day, right? The, the, the late 2000s, we'll, or, or 2015 to, to 19 to 20, we'll say here now. And when I was younger, right, in this industry, baseball pitching coaches were like, no, I don't need this. I don't, or right. I don't understand it and I don't want it. And now, they know that this can further their career because there's guys who've been pitching coaches in the SEC and the ACC that are now major league baseball pitching coaches because they were implementing this at Vanderbilt, for example, or other schools, had these labs, learned how to use the equipment, produced outstanding pitchers, and now they have opportunities to go to another level. Maybe they never thought they could, or maybe they hoped that they could get to one day if they could set themselves apart and not only know the baseball part of it, the coaching or mechanics of throwing, then also knowing how to use the technology because that becomes a difference maker. And I actually had a conversation with a graduate student yesterday saying, if you don't get in our labs and you don't get better at this, 
you're actually going to hurt your career opportunities because other people are going to be doing the same stuff. And when your name is on someone's desk with a resume and you don't list that you can do this type of stuff and others do, you're going to go in the pile of, no, I'm sorry, I'm not looking at you. So now it's, who isn't going to embrace this? Right. Who doesn't want to know this? Which would be great and, for obviously for you guys um, getting more graduate yeah. students in a bigger pool and that sort of thing. And I think the other thing Absolutely. that helps that a lot is uh, obviously it's more prevalent in baseball and all sports, but you have companies like Driveline and P3 who are integrating uh, yeah. motion capture systems, ground uh, ground force plates, all those sort of things into yep. their assessing and um, training protocols and are yeah. publishing that information, promoting it on social media, showing the results that they get. So now the generation coming up is like, this is the norm now, these sort of things. Yeah. It's no longer yeah, this, no, this yeah. like Dr. Smansky dreamland. It's okay, like <laughs> yeah. if, if I want to play professional baseball and I'm a senior in high school or I'm a, uh, you know, in college and kind of a, a borderline draft guy, like, I need to do these things. I can use these for my advantage, uh, whether it's just using a Rapsodo to create a new pitch or, um, you know, mm-hmm. learning how to use your back leg better through a ground force reaction plate. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for the amount of people that I think will be coming through the program, which will obviously mean more help for you, more research done, so. uh, higher quality candidates and, um, you know, that sort of thing where it's really going to push the envelope and advance the research and the work that, that you can get done there. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't know Kyle Bodie, but I can only commend him for his desire to bring this type of sports science to baseball. I I do, you know, I, whenever, you know, somebody is doing something like these things, and, and Eric Cressy is another person, and Ron Walsworth is another person, and the late Dick Mills, who passed away, his stuff. I've always gone to their web pages and looked at their information to see what they're doing, to see what they might be advocating. The beautiful thing is that a lot of these individuals who have now gone through those programs are now working in professional baseball. So yep. there's guys, most recently I think I saw on Dragline's email that they sent out, maybe there's six or seven former coaches that worked with them. They got hired this offseason. Pro baseball. Like this, yeah, within the yeah. past six months. Yep, and then a lot of Eric Crestview's People now, because he works with a lot of pro ass, a lot of pro baseball players. Those are the type of people who are getting jobs as strength and conditioning people. Yeah. And ge- general managers of baseball teams, by the way, now are younger than me. They're, they're in their mid thirties, man. Anyway, they're using technology. They're using the statistics to help them make decisions. And a lot of that started with the Moneyball stuff that Billy Bean was doing. And so, again, somebody who was different or cutting edge like Billy Dean where they all thought he was nuts. Now who's not using this information in yep. some capacity? Because the more you can use data to support your reasons, that can help you make better decisions because you know the numbers don't lie and it is what it is. And it's the person who can understand the game, who can understand the science and understand the statistics can have a lot of influence. And Really, you know, I, I even thought about myself, you know, if you wanted to have a career in pro baseball, why couldn't you be a general manager of a baseball team? Because now someone like myself or you yeah. or some others, they understand all these aspects 
and now hopefully we can use that information to improve the performance of individuals. Right, now, the player the development always, should be much, much yeah. further ahead now. Now, the one thing I always come back to is because I'm also a syndicate at times. I've watched enough movies and seen enough real-life stuff to happen. The general managers are also using this information to have players get a contract for lower money because now you're not performing like you used to, which I understand, and, it's, I'm not, and I think it's justifiable. But my intent was never to use this type of information that way. It was always to enhance performance. But again, the numbers will tell you whether somebody's performing well and I'm going to give you more money, or if you're not performing well, hey, man, I'm sorry, you're just not doing it like you used to. I'm, not, I'm either not willing to pay you that money or I'm just going to not even, I'm going to release you and somebody else can take a chance on you if they want. And, and so I understand both sides of it. I always just think of it as a, a, the positive side of it and yeah. not the other side. Right. You know? well, that that kind of, and we basically just, just, my next question was going to be what trends do you see occurring, but I think we covered that one pretty thoroughly. Uh, so move on. Well, kind here's of, another thing, though. So okay, go ahead. At Louisiana Tech, for, you know, so in Louisiana Tech, we have a, another department uh, that is in, called nanotechnology. So I don't know all that they're doing over there, but nanotechnology basically is like little robots that are going to be injected into your body. So, <laughs> we're, so now I'm thinking you know, down the road, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, and I don't know how quickly this technology is going to evolve. But I potentially foresee that they'll be injecting things into our bodies to find out where the problem is. So if you have cardiovascular disease, let's go get rid of it. If you have some other issues like cancers, let's go destroy it. But now how is it going to be used in the sports world? Hey, let's go into the person's body, go into their arm, and then maybe we can find out something that's really going on that we could never have known about otherwise. And now maybe we can heal somebody in a different way or identify the problem and then you know, take them back and not do anything and rest and recover longer. But I, I just have a feeling that this nanotechnology stuff is going to go places that we maybe don't even know or imagine what could think is possible just yet. And it'll be young people who are really smart in the engineering or biomedical engineering area who like sport who are going to try to bring it that direction. Or it's going to be a doctor that tries to bring it that, that direction. And who knows what we're going to see. And, and maybe we won't see it in my particular lifetime, but maybe it'll be yours or maybe my kids. But I, I really have a feeling that the um, evolution of sports medicine is going to change significantly. And when, so I, really I'm tying this into Major League Baseball still doesn't have a handle on why there are so many arm issues with yeah. the elbow or the shoulder. And because, you know, we have all this information, but yet we have more injuries than ever before. Right. Why? Well, there's guys throwing harder than ever before. And you know, I remember hearing Dr. Fleissig talk about cadaver research and how much force they could put on a cadaver arm. Now, granted, it's not a live human being. It's not somebody who's in strength and conditioning. It wasn't an athlete. But they were looking at the tensile strength of a bone, a tensile strength of a ligament, a tensile strength of a tendon, the muscle. And there's only so much force that can be placed on this arm before it snaps, it breaks, or something happens. So I remember him talking about how throwing probably faster than 103 miles an hour isn't going to be possible because the arm probably can't endure it. Now, man, that's not the forces of the entire body. That's not how the body is being utilized and creating momentum and you know, going maybe the right direction. But still, there was some fear that if you keep throwing harder and harder, the human body may not be able to tolerate it, and we're going to have more injuries than ever before. Well, we do have more guys throwing harder than ever, faster than 100 miles an hour now, 
And so how much can the body endure it for? What are we going to do in the strength and conditioning field to help offset that and make the human body stronger without, you know, supplements, you know, vitamin S and other things like that. <laughs> That's steroids for those exactly. that didn't get that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Vitamin S. Or growth hormone or right. some of the other things that are out there that athletes are going to, I believe, always try to utilize because if you're not good enough or you're struggling in your career, are you willing to take something that's going to uh, prolong your career or give you an advantage? And we know that that stuff works, and that's another topic for another day, but uh, athletes will always be looking for an edge some way, somehow, to help them stay in the game. And we'll say now, make the money that they're making because – you know, if you make $430 million, that might be a comfortable life just for a couple of years, right? Should. Should do the trick. <laughs> should do the trick, at least for years. Yeah. You know? um, so it's amazing where it's going. That's that's very interesting. I, I had not heard of – I didn't know we were there yet. Uh, yeah, so nanotechnology. If you – this is kind of more of an abstract question for you. If you were put in a position of czar of strength and conditioning – what would you try? What would you change for baseball or just strength? And just strength and conditioning, and you can turn it. You can do both. You can talk about both. Well, I, my first comment that comes to my mind right now is high school athletes. When you have high school athletes who play multiple sports, they're always in season. So if they're always in season, then those who do strength and conditioning at the high school level, you have one of the greatest challenges. How are you going to change some of things always in season? And so if the predominant sport in high schools is football, which primarily it is around the country, then if you have a player who's not playing football at this moment but playing another sport like basketball or track and field or baseball or something like that, and you're having them do workouts that is off-season for football, but they're doing it during their in-season of their sport, that is one thing that I would say we've got to be I have a a better approach to how we work with those particular individuals. You've got to design programs that are specifically for those individuals, even though they're part of the team and a part of that, I'll say, group of people working in that first period, that seventh period of the day. You can't have those athletes doing the same thing as the players who aren't actually in season. Because in my professional opinion, that can do more harm than good. So what, so what is some type of mandate? I mean, would you mandate a CSCS for people in those positions? Would it be a master's degree? What would be, uh, I guess, a baseline educational um, that would be mandatory to, to be in a position like that? Well, I think it certainly would be great to have a nationally recognized certification. So the CSCS is certainly one that could be looked at. There are some others that are out there that are in the collegiate strength and conditioning world that are another group is involved with, the CSCCA. But my, so I think either one of those could be really good because at a USA weightlifting, if you're going to be involved in Olympic lifting and you want to teach it properly, you've got to have those minimum qualifications. I think working with other individuals who have really good experience to help be a mentor for that future coach is really important. You know, it'd be, it'd be wonderful to say, yes, everyone should have a master's degree, but if you have people working at the high school level, that may not really be the case. They might only have an undergraduate degree. So for sure, an undergraduate degree, it'd be really nice if it was in a kinesiology-related field. Mm -hmm. 
because, you know, as you, know, you were here with me at Louisiana Tech, when you have a baseball player who's a business major or some other degree that's not in kinesiology, they're not exposed to this type of information. So the things that right. people in kinesiology probably take for granted because you hear it over and over and over, and it just reinforces what the body's going to do or how it adapts. The average person doesn't know that, doesn't understand that. So even if you have an undergraduate degree and you have a CSCS, still doesn't mean you are as knowledgeable as potentially somebody who has the degree in the kinesiology-related field. Now, it would be absolutely wonderful to have somebody with a master's degree because they have taken it to another level. Their focus in their academics would have been most likely greater. They probably would have gone through some sort of practical training yeah. in the that's what That's what world. I would suggest is that even more than a CSCS because, you know, you can regurgitate some information is having a, a minimum hour requirement of working under someone that is yeah. certified in some capacity that, you know, is a almost like a teaching coach. Um, so right. that you know they've been exposed to 400 hours, I think is what my internship was in undergrad, 400 hours of yeah. someone that knows what they're doing in, in the field and not just what they read yeah, or, um, you know, what, what they've kind of, know that the answer on the test is sure but i mean i still would go back and say you got to have some type of minimum certification that is recognized uh nationally and doesn't i'll say govern itself meaning the cscs is an exam that when it's given it's given through a company called parson view and parson view does all the testing and the uh the gives the person their answers so the NSCA is not grading the exam. So the NSCA is not telling you whether you're certified or not, you know, um, you know, to, they're not the person grading the test. And so that's important to, to recognize because, you know, if you're going to be a beautician, you're going to be a barber, you're going to be someone who works on someone's fingernails and toenails, right? You have to have a certification yeah. to do that. Or, or I should say a license, excuse me, a license to do that. One of the things that, you and your, your viewers may know is that over the last 10 years now, 30 football players have died. And it's not that they're dying during football games, they're dying during conditioning. Right. And most recently, we've got these, a lot of cases of rhabdomyolysis. And for those who don't know rhabdomyolysis, in a nutshell, your internal organs shut down because of a multitude of factors that are really um, compounding. So heat illness related things could be part of it, deconditioned human being poor nutrition, a lot of things to contribute to this. But the point is, one death is too many. 30 deaths, yeah. that's atrocious. Right. And if the NCAA or respective schools don't do anything about that, then that's a travesty. So you've got to have a minimum certification. You've got to have experience. It was really great to have a master's degree and then those internships and practical experiences that allow you to know more because that individual working alongside an athletic trainer, maybe a medical doctor, depending on the level of sport they're playing with, in conjunction with the sport coach, need to make the best decision for the young person and don't put them in harm's way. So I am very much in favor of having the most highly qualified people work in these areas. And I'm also an advocate for these people being paid a higher salary because I will say at the NCAA level, there are young people who are interns who actually already have a master's degree and are trying to be in the strength and conditioning world at the collegiate level, and they're receiving minimal salaries and really have a difficult time living to pay their rent, to pay for their food, 
and they're looking for a full-time job that pays them a salary that has some benefits. And even when they do get those jobs, they still aren't anywhere close to what a sport coach is making. And sometimes these strength and conditioning people spend more time with those athletes than the sports coach will ever spend with them. And they also are the ones who literally have the the life of that athlete kind of in their hands and can be a wonderful person or could be somebody who's a detriment to that person. So we need to really advocate for highly qualified people who earn a good wage so that we have the best person training, you know, high school kids, college kids, pro athletes. And really, again, I'm going to go back to the high school athletes. If you have a young person, male or female, who plays multiple sports, you better know how to handle that. Right. Uh, and it's, it's not easy. It really, it's just not easy because you also, at the high school level, are usually understaffed. And so I do understand why they may not have the flexibility to create individual programs because you don't have somebody to go monitor that individual when you have 50 other athletes that are in the same weight room that are maybe not playing that sport. They're not in season, but they're still part of that seventh period or first period or whatever it ends up being. And it's, it's hard to manage it. If you're understaffed and you feel that you, as the strength coach, don't have the ability to do that. So what's your choice? Everybody's doing the same thing, so at least I can manage that. And if one person might be doing something that's not most appropriate, then, you know, for lack of a better term, you're willing to take that chance. And, you know, most of the time things aren't that dangerous, but sometimes they are. And if you don't notice it and, and recognize the signs and symptoms of something, then that could be one of the worst days of your life because yep. something bad, something tragically could happen to some young person. Absolutely. So last question before we hit some rapid-fire uh, questions at the okay. end. What advice would you give to a young coach thinking about getting into the strength conditioning field or career? Well, as we've just been talking about, I would definitely recommend you not only have an undergraduate degree but a master's degree in exercise science, and kinesiology, sports performance, whatever they're calling the respective programs. If you're going to get a master's degree, try to work with a professor who actually does have an expertise in that particular area. I would highly recommend that you get involved in research so you understand the research process. So that even if you don't want to be a researcher yourself, at least you know how to read the information and understand with a critical eye what is good information and what might not be good information. That was one of the biggest things I took from grad school. Yeah. You've got to be a critical thinker. You've got to know how to read. You've got to know how to write. And then you've got to know how to communicate. And then certainly uh, for a young coach, get those practical experiences yep. under working under the best coaches you can so that you learn what to do. And I also have always told right, graduate students who come work with me, you also learn what not to do. Yep. Sometimes you're going to work with somebody who may not do it the same way you would want to do it or maybe the best way. Anyway, you learn what to do and what not to do, and then that reinforces your beliefs and then develops your character as a strength coach. And, and I would tell people who want to be in the field, read, read, yep. read, read. Go to conferences, talk to people, create relationships so that you can share ideas with. And then as you are developing your approach to what you're going to do with your facility, your equipment, come up with the best plan that you can for whatever athlete or sports you're working with over the course of a year. And then you know think about the big picture and have some sort of macro cycle. If you are going to have the fortunate opportunity to work with athletes during maybe their freshman through their senior year, whether that's high school or college, or a developmental athlete who's going to go from, we'll say, minor league baseball through pro baseball, and you know, be conscientious about what you do. Uh, 
and know why you're doing it. You know, I talked yeah, about that earlier. Know what you're doing and yeah. why. Yep. And, and that becomes real important because you will always be criticized. There will always be a double-edged sword. When things are going great, you are the greatest strength coach in the world, man. And when things are going bad for whatever reason, and it, has, it potentially has nothing to do with strength and conditioning, you will also potentially be the scapegoat as to why they're not performing very well. So you've got to know what you're doing and why, so that when you are criticized, you can come back and say, no, this is what we did during this time. I don't believe this caused that to occur. So uh, that's real important to understand, because if you don't, if you don't know how to defend yourself, then you can be, you know, buried real quick. And that's not a good thing. That's not a good place to be. No. Uh, okay, rapid fire questions. Going into a little okay. bit more personal, Dr. Smansky. Favorite book? Okay. My favorite book. Shoot, I read so many books, man. It's kind of maybe with the book that I'm reading at the time. I mean, I'll just, right now I'm reading The System, The Soviet Periodization Adaptation for the American Strength Coach. It's by Johnny Parker, Al Miller, and Rob Pellerinello. And he, um, Al Miller is a person who worked in the NFL for a long time. He actually lives in Monroe, Louisiana, was the strength coach at ULM for a while. And this is a book that the three guys put together. And kind of like the class that I teach, which is a kinesiology 546, which I have changed the name now because we've got another class in sports conditioning, but it's the theory and methodology of resistance training. It exposes young strength coaches to all these different methodologies, and then here's what's worked best for us as we evaluated and implemented all these things. And so now they're giving you their 20 years of experience and saying, hey, man, this is what has worked best for us. So a really nice book, The System, The Soviet Periodization Adapted for the American Strength Coach. Nice book. And then read books on sports psychology, man. Strength coaches don't usually read stuff like that. Uh, And so those are also really good. All right, what's next? Okay, favorite movie? Oh, man. I I quote movies every class period, man. So if it's not my favorite baseball movie, then I probably would say The Natural. Probably The Natural uh, because that one is Roy Hobbs. He just wants to be the best player that ever can be, and he could do it. And whatever was asked, he could, and then he dealt with adversity and then made it work the best way he could. Okay. Uh, favorite musical artist? That has changed over the years. Right now, my favorite musical artist is U2. And I actually, believe it or not, I told my wife recently because my father had another heart attack recently, but he's still alive and doing well. I've now been thinking about my own death because I've got cardiovascular issues in my family. So I'm now trying to build my U2 catalog so that when I die, that they can play these songs at my funeral. And people will hopefully understand a little bit more about what I enjoyed when I listened. So U2 is my favorite musical group. You'll be pumped full of those nanotechnology bots, so you'll be fine. <laughs> there you go. That would be really nice. We'll be living forever yeah, then, right? there you go. You'll be like 150. Uh, if you weren't doing your job, like someone said, you cannot, you can no longer work in strength conditioning or teaching. What would you do? Man, what else would I do if I, if I could? Well, I, I, I'd probably just, I'd probably go back to baseball coaching, probably. Um, although, is, I, is there anything that's the outside of sports yeah, that you would do? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Probably would be an architect. That's I what, just, yeah, that would I be my guess. Modern, I, I love modern contemporary building. My wife and I bought um, uh, 1.4 acres of land across the street from where we live, and we've been waiting and waiting and waiting patiently. Maybe it's me more than her. But I would love to live in a modern contemporary home and 
just enjoy the atmosphere because I do believe your home is your castle. And because I have a fine arts background, my dad was a musician, my mother was an artist, that uh, arts, architecture, the stuff that I just love. So I, I, I'd, tell you, if I'd be an artist, architect. I would do all those artistic types of things. Absolutely. Okay, last one. What's one thing about yourself that your students would be surprised to learn about you? I think uh, I'm probably a lot funnier and maybe not always so serious as they think I am. <laughs> uh, That's a good one. I think so. You know, everyone has a their perception of who they think you are based on whatever presentations or lectures yeah. you give. But maybe another thing they don't know about me is I've been cutting my own hair since I was 18 years old. That's hilarious. I, I never, had no I, idea about I ha- that. I have not paid for a haircut, so I... You know, maybe a year or two ago, I kind of calculated up. I think I probably saved about $20,000 over my lifetime of paying for haircuts. That's hilarious. Yeah. And actually, now I cut my own kid's hair. So my kid's like, hey, Dad, I want it high and tight. So every two weeks, I'm cutting my kid's hair. So I'm a barber also on the side. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea about that one. I would would have said for that one is that uh, your artistic ability. Because I remember going to eat. I didn't know about that until we ate at your house one night and you showed me your paintings. I was shocked. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, um, most recently, actually yesterday, Dr. Bill Kramer from Ohio State University was supposed to yep. be here to give a talk. Unfortunately, he couldn't come because he had some things come up at Ohio State that just couldn't change. But And he doesn't know this, but I actually, when I was at a conference, at the NSCA conference, maybe two or three years ago with him, he asked me what my parents did because he was from Wisconsin. I'm from the Chicagoland area. And I told him that my dad was a percussionist and played musicals and at times played with the Chicago Symphony. He goes, you're not going to believe this, but my dad was a jazz musician in the 40s and 50s. I said, get out. And he goes, no. So he sent me a picture of his dad playing the trumpet, a black and white photo. And so I actually have completed a piece of artwork of Dr. Kramer's father playing the trumpet that I was going to give to him yesterday when he presented. So I'm going to, I'll give it to him at another point in time, but that's my most recent piece is I did a black and white uh, pencil drawing of Dr. Kramer's dad playing the trumpet. Uh, And it looks pretty good. It's it's a pretty cool picture because it's really got very high contrast between light and dark, Mm -hmm. really big dark shadows and the light on his face and on the trumpet. And it, it looks pretty cool. It looks pretty cool. That's awesome. Well, that's all yeah. I have. That's all I have for today, Doc. I really appreciate it. Uh, I just want to thank you for the way that you challenged me in grad school and pushed me, and really helped guide me to where I am today. Um, so, thank you for that impact in my life, and I know that you have had that impact on countless others. Um, so, we appreciate you and all that you do, and the um, way you pour yourself into your work. I appreciate that very much. I, I think that's an important characteristic. I think of anybody who wants to be successful. Is you know I think the word passion is overused these days, so I try to think of other words. But man, you better love what you do, and and, and enjoy doing it every day and contributing in some way. Because you know I, I do tell students today more than ever to close their eyes and think of the most tenacious person, the most tenacious being, the most tenacious thing they can think of. And then after I repeat that a couple of times, just like a hypnotist, right? You go over and over again, so that hopefully they're gonna get involved and they are going to think about that tenacious thing being person i ask them to open their eyes and then i say what was that person thing or animal and then they give me all of their various 
individuals. And I said, that tenacious quality and take it towards your life. Take it towards your relationships. Take it towards your schooling. And now in the academic setting, learn as much as you possibly can about what you want to be and apply it so that you're not hopefully, you know, bored in class or or just regurgitate information. Learn it as much as you can so that it's going to help you for your career and you can do that. It will change your entire outlook on how you're going to approach your life. And some people have told me that was an eye-opening experience for them because they actually thought about it. And there's other students, like always, that may not engage in that at all. But there's people who really want to do something and you ask them to do that, all of a sudden that does make them think differently. And so for the Little League baseball team that I coach with my kids, I use that because you know, one kid's a tiger, one kid's his dad, one, one is his grandmother, or whatever else. And then I gave them names, right? So tell me the name of your tiger. Tell me the name of your grandfather. And all of a sudden now, when I want them to do something really, really impactful in the game, one young man said he's Bob the Tiger. So I was like, okay, Bob, let's get it done now. And his name is actually Kyron. When everyone knows I'm talking, they all know I'm talking to his inner, you know, terminator, energizer bunny, inner tiger. And now hopefully that turns the switch on, and now they become that tenacious being. And so I think it's great. And I'm glad that you actually have done the things you accomplished because when you first came here, we had, you told me that you weren't interested in the strength and conditioning on business and your way. And you have been able to do those things. So I'm going to commend you because now you are being a successful individual at what you do. And now you're trying to advance it and pay it forward. Thank you. I appreciate that. It means a lot. So thank you again for your time. Uh, we look forward to all the things that are going on and will be going on in, the, in your new lab. Um, and, and just always, as always, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. I've enjoyed it very much. And if you're ever interested in it again, I'll be happy to help in any way. Thank you. As we wrap up, I just wanted to touch on two main points that we kind of glossed over during the interview. The first one being the Phil Maton story. Here's a kid that comes into college at about 175 pounds, decent frame, not particularly athletic, and really turned himself into a major league baseball player. He took the time, invested his knowledge and studying to better himself and figure out what worked for him. And I think a lot of kids just try to do what someone else has done, or don't want to invest the mind power and effort in researching the body and learning about kinesiology and things like that. But if you're going to be successful in sports, at this day and age, you need to have a basic understanding of how your body works and what works for you. And the other thing is just to reiterate how awesome Doc is. He's extremely busy. There's tons of other things that he could have been doing. Uh, really appreciate him taking the time out of his day to do this with me. Uh, and selfishly, it was just great to catch up. Also, if you're looking to get into the field of strength conditioning and specifically go to grad school or undergrad, I would highly, highly, highly recommend that you do it at Louisiana Tech. Just hearing about the lab and something we talked about off the phone once we finished the interview uh, was how bad I want to get back there now and see what they have going on and play around the lab. So definitely going to try to plan a trip in the near future. It was an awesome experience without all the technology in the lab that they have now when I went to school there. So I can't even imagine uh, how much better it would be now and the opportunity to have to work with the baseball team and potentially some other sports and just 
be around Doc and understand how someone of his level works. That's also something I learned a lot about was just seeing how he operates and how thorough and detail-oriented he is. So, um, again, thank you, Doc. Thank you for everything. Really appreciate your time. Uh, and I hope the listeners enjoyed this as much as I did. Thanks.